This is a Stimulus Network podcast. Hello and welcome to The Cosmic Shed. I'm Andrew and in today's episode we're going to be talking to Professor Cheryl Vint, a professor of science fiction media studies at the University of California, Riverside. Cheryl's books include Bodies of Tomorrow, Animal Alterity and Science Fiction, A Guide for the Perplexed. Now, I've just finished watching The Tomorrow War and I was a little bit perplexed about that, to be honest. So I thought now was a very good time to release this episode. And talking to somebody whose job it is to research science fiction and live in California... My first question was, how did you wangle that? Yeah, certainly it's like a lot of luck, I think, <laughs> is the appropriate answer to that question. Um, and all the more so because I'm, I'm not, uh, I came from Canada. So living in California has all the charm for me that a person who grew up where it's like, you know, 40 below regularly um, appreciates the charm of California. Yeah, so. yeah. Um, but the, the reason I guess there's a program at my school is there's... Um, an archive of science fiction materials that's held by our library that was started um, long ago, started in the 60s, actually, when no one in academia took science fiction very seriously. Um, So it was visionary from that point of view. Um, Now, um, many, many universities are interested in studying speculative fiction. But um, around 10 years ago, the then dean of the um, College of Humanities and Social Sciences decided there should be an academic program at the school that would draw on the resources of the library because it was being used a lot by external researchers, including me. I came and did research at this campus before I was ever a faculty member here, but it wasn't really um, central to any programming that was happening. So they decided to create a program and they recruited a couple of people um, and I got to live in California and, and get paid to talk about science fiction. So yeah, it's, it's pretty good, isn't it? I do, is there a particular angle that your school comes at it from? Or? Yeah, there is. Um, so the other person who was recruited um, the year before me actually was um, Nalo Hopkinson, whose work you might know. So there's always been a kind of focus between the creative side and the the analytical side because she was in the Department of Creative Writing And I'm split between the departments of English and media and cultural studies. And then um, in 2014, 2015, um, Nalo and I got a grant and we did a series of workshops around what we were calling alternative futurisms. So there had long been this kind of tradition of um, Afrofuturism. And we were interested in thinking like more expansively, like what are Latinx futures look like? What are Asian American futures like? What are indigenous futures like? So we did a year long series of bringing um, writers and scholars and community members um, into conversation. And that that sort of focus around social justice, diversity, um, equity concerns, I would say, is at the center of what we do in our program from that point forward. Uh, And I have two more colleagues now who got hired um, in subsequent years. So one is John Jennings, who is really well known in the comic book world. He's an artist as well as an academic and does a lot of work around um, comic books, especially um, by creators of color. And then um, just last year, my colleague Andre Carrington, um, who you might know his book, Speculative Blackness, and he works on African-American culture and speculative fiction. Cool. So when you say that you you bring writers together with people, is that then 
create new science fiction? Does it create new speculative fiction? Um, well, I mean, I think uh, if you spend a lot of time with science fiction writers, I think you discover everything you do with them creates new science fiction in one way or another, like, you know, even chatting over something over tea. Um, so, I mean, yeah. I think, yes, that certainly happens. I don't know that it's specifically our goal, like, oh, we must get together and make new science fiction on X, Y, or Z, but we, we're interested in sort of, um, you know, two different, um, prisms through which I guess um, we're uh, refracting contemporary culture, one of which shows up in sort of scholarly research and connection to um, stuff that's being drawn from philosophy or social sciences or things like that, and the other that shows up in creative practice. And we're interested in having a dialogue across um, shared interests, um, uh, priorities, different ways, especially like around the imagination as itself, a really powerful political tool, I think that's where we sort of come together the most. Mm. Tell me about imagination as a political tool. <laughs> yeah, I was like, you should have thought, saw that cup. <laughs> Why I think speculative fiction has become in the humanities um, much more a central object of study than it was when I started out. Like, certainly you should have seen me when I was doing my PhD and people were like, you're doing your PhD on what? Like, you'll never get a job. Like, that is work out for you um so it was like seen as pretty fringe when I first started working on it but um speculative fiction is about um how science and technology are impacting daily life and certainly I would say over the past like I mean it's always impacting daily life but over the past 25 or 30 years that technologies that are associated with what once was the space of science fiction especially like IT technologies are at the center of um, so much of our social lives and our work lives. And I mean, and this was even pre-pandemic where now we do everything on Zoom or Teams or whatever their digital platform we're doing it on. So I think that, that there's a way in which we're always interested in um, thinking through what these technologies are doing to us. Like, you know, not just the shiny futures where we have a cool new gadget, which I think industry is also very interested in thinking about like you know the sort of apple idea that you invent the thing and then you create the market of people that want it but speculative fiction writers were also interested in like well what about the people who aren't using it or about how social relations get changed by it and like maybe create new categories of marginalization or new economic problems or new environmental problems things we know very well the history of other technological um, innovations have done. So there's always um, a more dialectical um, good things combined with bad things picture that comes out of the full world building of speculative fiction. So I'd say that's one part of it is a sort of tool of the political, political imaginary. It's thinking things through to their logical consequences. And then the other is just um, futurity itself is really a, a central mobilizing category in politics these days. Um, whether it's sort of the question of like, do we even have a future? How are we going to cope with climate change? What, you know, what that future is going to look like to, um, you know, social justice movements, um, especially around racial equity that are really questioning a kind of default trajectory towards a future that maybe many people have taken for granted and, um, imagining like, no, we can make um, decisive breaks with that past and we don't have to follow in these trajectories of sort of colonial capitalism. 
uh, and we can imagine something better. So I think that's the other central way it shows up as a political tool. Okay, that's interesting. I, I, there's, <laughs> I mean, I don't want to um, kind of presume anything, but my feeling from kind of what you're saying, but also from reading and watching a lot of science fiction, perhaps it's the science fiction that I choose to read and watch, but it seems to be, you know, focused on more, shall we say, left centered politics and furthering that side of things uh, is that the case and um, is there any really good science fiction that is more from the right-wing side of things well i would probably not be the best person to ask because my taste too would tend towards the more left side of things so um I do think there's a considerable amount of energy around the left side of things in science fiction and i think that that um has always been the case not to say that that all science fiction is left-wing or that it's even inherently left-wing i would certainly never say that but from the very beginnings there have been people like the futurians in the 1930s who saw it as um you know a genre that was explicitly about like remaking the social order you know, towards a future that would be more just and things like that so it's always been a genre that has that connection to sort of utopian narratives and and um philosophical projects about making the better world. Um, but at the same time, there's also always been a strain of what we might call more libertarian or more technocratic um, science fiction that is more interested in sort of projects of managerial excellence or something like that might be. I'm trying to think of a way they might want to phrase it to themselves. Um, and so I think there's always also been a sort of right-wing strain to things and that um, but then you get complex figures like Robert Heinlein, who is certainly not, I would say, one of my favorite writers, but it's very easy to look at some of his works, which are quite appalling in their politics and say like, oh, he's just right wing. Um, but there's other works that are very much like in defense of labor and the worker. So, I mean, I think that science fiction is about trying to negotiate what those left right wing poles mean in any particular political context. And there's certainly like a lot of um, space adventure, space opera fiction right now, which doesn't like to question the sort of imperial um, narrative presumptions on which that kind of adventure rests. But there's also great space opera that's precisely about asking questions about like, well, what does it actually mean to run an empire and to require other people to learn your language or et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. You use the word empire there, which uh, and space opera, uh, which brings. <laughs> so, are you a fan of Star Wars? Are you? Uh, I know Star Wars. I would say I'm a fan of Star Trek, and I know Star Wars, and I know okay. that there's at least in the fan communities I circulate in, that's sort of like your litmus test of which side you come down on is Trek or mm. Wars. So. Mm. I tend towards the Star Trek, but I know Star Wars, so I'm happy to to talk about it. Uh, well, no, I just that's an interesting thing. My daughter, who's uh, who's nine, um, she's constantly asking me Star Wars or Star Trek, Daddy. And my my answer is, I, you know, do I want fish or chips? No, I'll have both of them. Thank <laughs> you very much. Um, I, I, you know, they're different and they serve different purposes, right? So it's yeah. True, there's nothing to say you can't have both. Um, and I think, I mean, for one thing, that's fantastic that you have a young daughter who's interested in these things because 
Um, certainly for a long time, some of these spaces weren't as welcoming to women, and there's still some spaces that really aren't welcoming to women. Um, but especially there, I would say um, Star Wars is perhaps um, got a bit of an edge. Um, not that there aren't central female characters in Star Trek as well, but Star Wars, I think, does appeal to younger viewers um, than Star Trek does. And I know, like, I'm of the age where um, I was a teenager when, like, the first um, films came out. And so many of my friends can, like, quote the first films verbatim and things like that. And then when these most recent films came out, the prequel films, but the most recent films, they were able to talk about, like, this thing they love from their own childhood that they can now take their children to, and especially fathers with daughters were like, you know, this world that never had space for women, really, or outside of wearing chainmail bikinis. And now mm-hmm. they can take their daughters and see like heroic worlds for women and share this love. So um, I think that's something that Star Wars is doing pretty well. And that's why um, the new emphasis on gender and racial diversity and their most recent Star Wars like films, television series, other franchise spinoffs, um, I do see it having a positive social value. That's good. That's good. But, you know, Star Trek Discovery is certainly along those lines as well, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. But I mean, I think Star Trek Discovery probably appeals less to nine-year-olds than Star Wars. But what do I know of nine-year-olds, I guess? So perhaps you know better than I. I can tell you that my nine-year-old hasn't watched it. It's it's not she's not ready for that yet. It's yeah, as you say, it's definitely not. But I I, I think they're doing a really good job in this uh, in Discovery. I mean, Star Trek's always sort of been ahead of the curve, hasn't it? Even if it's behind, when we watch it now, it's way behind. At the time, it was ahead well. Of certainly, the curve. I mean, I think the especially Roddenberry's original vision was a kind of civil rights liberalism that was the sort of um, space of pushing towards greater um, equity and social justice in the 60s. And so while there's lots of critiques to be made of that now, um, and there were critiques being made of more radical people then as well, in terms of it being a sort of mainstream industry created cultural product it always was sort of on the side of moving in the direction of of more equity and more justice but i mean it wasn't like you know there was like black panther characters <laughs> in the original and so i mean it was uh i'm not trying to say there wasn't a more radical um conversation being had at the same t- at the time that it, the original series came out too but it's done a good job in my opinion of like negotiating that legacy because you look at things like you know trying even in the sort of 1980s which was hardly a hotbed of leftism um and the release of the next generation um you know the particular way they imagine captain picard uh, which i mean i understand the critiques of captain picard as a kind of like um white male paternalistic figure but imagining that in the context of the 1980s as compared to the sort of like swashbuckling womanizer that was captain kirk like you know they were moving in the right direction i would say yeah yeah and now we've got you know we've got michael burnham um etc and yeah we've got trans characters we've got all sorts of things that which are you know i I guess in the 60s if they made the captain of the enterprise a black woman that would have blown people's minds beyond belief, right, in the 1960s. Even today, though, it's upset some people. 
Yeah, certainly. Which, I mean, it's, uh, it helps us not pat ourselves on the back too much about how far we've come, I guess, to see. Um, I think that the sort of outrage has attached much more strongly to recasting in Star Wars than in Star Trek, but that might also speak to a sort of like greater, um, that that the it's the cinema where um, Star Wars is really coming back right now and it's television where Star Trek is really coming back right now. Um, but I mean... Yeah, there is, to Roddenberry's credit, he did want to have a female first officer and was told by the networks that he could not do that. Um, but, I mean, it's always, it's, you know, uh, on the one hand, Nichelle Nichols' first interracial kiss. On the other hand, they had to have some strange, like, narrative by which they were, they couldn't control their bodies, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, they're negotiating, but I mean, they're negotiating having to try to tell these stories in a um, mass market medium that's dominated by executives whose eyes on the bottom line. And in a context where the way television made its money was through advertisers who had a lot of control because they they wanted this to be able to show in, you know, California, but also in more conservative states, too. Uh, and not to say that everything is great in California and everyone is left wing in California either. So I'm not trying to disparage other states. Mm -hmm. But I mean, it's also a really different context when you're trying to make a program that you want to air on the one of the three stations across the entire nation versus you're making a streaming program for a niche audience that's going to seek out this content. It's just a very different media landscape now, too. Mm -hmm. Okay, right. So uh, we we talked about Star Wars and Star Trek. I mean, but we don't have to stop. But um, <laughs> the, I, just just to head back to the kind of academic side of things. If I wanted to research something for you, could I come to you and say, "Hi, I I really want to do some research in the portrayal of trans characters in science fiction between 1960 and 2021." Well, I mean, that's one way it could work is come and be a student in the program. Um, if you're going to do independent research, you'd probably more likely be a graduate student um, because it's to do the research over that long a time period is probably going to take more than the period of one course. And one course is generally the time I spend with any um, undergraduate students. But no, there's courses in... Um, various like there's courses in the history of science fiction there's courses i don't teach fan studies courses myself but my colleague um dr carrington he's interested in fan studies so there's ways in which um the ways fans have wanted to uh have long called for more queer representation in something like star trek um those discussions are there to learn about those histories and things like that graduate students decide on their own independent research projects and could do that research uh and then, I mean, you don't even have to come and be a student in the program. There's um, journals that are publishing research on these topics. So, you know, you you do the research, you read the, the existing um, discussion, you make your original intervention, you write your paper, it goes to peer review, and then and then perhaps it gets published, depending on how the peer review turns out. Mm -hmm. So, I, I'm guessing there's quite a few people who are listening to the podcast for whom academic research into science fiction, speculative fiction, is new um can you have you got sort of have you got are there particularly good bits of research that you could tell people to go towards that you know that you've particularly surprised by or loved in some way there's lots of work going on around uh 
climate change and speculative fiction and climate change and, and ways to think imaginatively about all the sort of layered things that go together to create the climate crisis, but also then to undo the climate crisis. There's um, research that's going around around um, colonialism in science fiction and especially looking at earlier histories of science fiction and how a lot of colonialist assumptions get embedded in a certain kind of imaginary and how we maybe don't, we still rely on some of those frameworks today, but we don't know the histories of where they came from. And so the research helps us to see like how a certain line of thinking is connected to a longer cultural history that you may or may maybe do not want to continue to reinforce. There's lots of interesting work going on now around questions of like robotics and AI and ethics and, you know, what it means to be working side by side with or navigating a world that's being shaped by these AI systems. Um, And so a lot of the, the stuff I do in my courses anyways, will be looking at, at science fiction that's, that's addressing these questions and offering us new ways to think about them or conceptualize them, but then also drawing on research being done by people um, like ethnographers or sociologists, or um, there's a lot of, I mean, something I've been reading a lot of lately as work on the sort of uh, um, philosophical underpinnings of Silicon Valley and the way a certain set of ideas that are central to a bunch of people who created technologies that now like, global populations rely on have sort of as well as as um exported facebook or twitter or whatever it is have also exported a sort of set of philosophical preoccupations that that come out of um you know because that's one small geographical location that's had a very oversized influence on sociality in the rest of the world so tracing those kind of connections is a lot what what are those philosophical standpoints that they've spread around the world disruption and unmaking and change is good, um, which a lot of people who are interested in, especially right now, like labor histories and histories of um, of labor struggle against capital will want to point out the sort of uh, businesses and people and life ways that fall by the wayside of disruption and, and think about disruption as having a, a social as well as business parameter to it. Um, a lot of emphasis on individualism, which can drift into libertarianism. Um, and so, like, again, just understanding more fully where those ideas come from and um, critiques of those ideas and why some people with different life experiences might have those critiques of some of those ideas. Um, there's a lot of... Um, discussion of like accelerationism, which is a term you've maybe heard or maybe haven't heard. Um, Accelerationism, there's both left-wing and right-wing versions of it, but basically the idea that we have to like make technology better as fast as possible because we have to kind of stay ahead of the curve of all the disasters we've made for ourselves that these smarter technologies will let us fix or, or in the like most sort of aspirational versions, like, like general AIs will just fix for us because we'll finally reach a point where it's like, Oh yeah. Okay. I see this climate change thing. didn't really turn out well, but here, this is what you do. Now we have like a technology that can like sink carbon again or whatever it is it's going to do. So this idea that um, even though things like industrialization and those shifts to technology created some of the problems, 
the only way out is through is kind of an idea. So you must accelerate these technologies because there'll be some utopian better possibility on the other side of better technology. Okay. When you so you're looking at all this stuff, does it make you hopeful? I mean, what's your outlook on the world when you're digging through all this stuff? <laughs> uh, I mean, both, right? I mean, it depends on the day. It depends on what I've read most recently. <laughs> so. I don't think I'm by inclination a hopeful person, but if, and I mean, and there's lots of reasons to worry about climate change and political polarization and automation in a current way in which capitalism works, meaning if people are out of work, they're also generally out of the possibility to like feed and clothe and house themselves. So, um, and, you know, speculation on real estate markets and increased homelessness, like there's lots of reasons to be pessimistic. But then I also see um, people who want to, to resist that and people who are writing stories about better future worlds where people work more collaboratively or where people, um, and there's lots of great stuff coming out of indigenous speculative writers where there's a different kind of cultural ethos about being responsible to one's ancestors, but also to one's descendants. And so we can't simply, you know, consume things as fast as possible and hope it'll all turn out okay. But instead we have to think about a responsibility to nurture the natural world and to think about like seven generations ahead and, and making sure that there's still a world there for those people. So those kind of things um, give me hope. Um, I try to think of the like, uh, um, Pessimism of the intellect, optimism of the will. Mm. Um, so, yeah, you have to, you know, there's, you can't close your eyes to the unfolding disaster, but there's also um, genuine moments of like generosity and creativity and true desire for solidarity in a better future. And you can't pretend those things aren't there and cynically just give up mm. either. I think that's fair. We had Andy Weir on recently, and he was talking about Project Hail Mary and things. And um, he was he was saying a thing, an idea which I've I've had in the past that I've lost, and I'm trying to gain it back again. Which is this idea that what happens on the news is the news because it's terrible, and that's what makes it a story. And there's millions and billions of people around the world doing beautiful, wonderful things to and with and for each other and it doesn't make the newspapers it doesn't make the news and we we shouldn't forget that and um yeah i'm pleased i'm pleased but could you give me a a, a book to read by a speculative uh writer that would give me hope uh that would give you hope uh i mean i can think of a number but they aren't going to give you hope in the sort of first page because the hope is the sort of journey through what's difficult and then and then I think there's hope in the new values that get cultivated by the world um so I mean one thing uh I would strongly recommend is N.K. Jemisin's Broken Earth trilogy the title I know doesn't seem super hopeful. <laughs> um but I mean I think I think what is hopeful about it is the until you can sort of truly face up to the real problems so that the earth has been broken and how it's been broken, you can't really find your way towards real solutions. If you are, if the solutions you're contemplating are in denial of the scope of the real problem. Right. And so I think that um, 
although this is this is takes place on an invented world there's obviously clear parallels between the problems that she uh, illuminates in that world and sort of analogs of problems in our world and so i would say ultimately yeah that is a very hopeful novel um suggesting a way forward um what what else have i read recently that i liked um i liked um sue burke's semiosis books um, which again involve a lot of like hardship and figuring things out, um, but it again it is a path towards uh, a more uh, reciprocal way of living with other species that leads to more ecologically sustainable possibilities for um, what human life could be. Uh, the big example, probably, and the one that's getting so much press right now, would be Kim Stanley Robinson's Ministry for the Future, um, which I mean he in most of his books, but I would say like so strongly in this one, even more so than some of his earlier work is very clear on imagining like actual solutions. We 21st century people could actually, could try to enact ourselves. Like he's, and he's very clear on um, it's, it's largely about climate change. He's been interested in sort of climate change and economic justice from the very first thing he's ever published. And it's very clear there's no like magic bullet. Like it's not like, oh, we do this thing and then it fixes it all. And then we can go on living the way we're living. And that's great. It's very clear. Like it's going to take a long time. Um, the sort of ball's already rolling. So inertia means some things are going to go worse before they go better because we just are in this carbon cycle that we, we have lost control of really. But also, you know, don't just throw your hands up in despair. There are concrete steps we can take, which maybe aren't going to make things better by 2050, but maybe will by 2150. And that's what it actually takes. Um, and th I mean, that's for me, one of the reasons why science fiction is exciting to me because it thinks on those timescales, right? Um, timescales that are belong a, beyond a single human lifestyle or, or lifespan. And that's what it actually takes to enact the kind of change that's needed to face these problems that a, a globalized world have created for us. Hmm. or we've created through our globalized world, I guess would be a better way to say that. I'm kind of interested to know whether there's any research been done into um, whether science fiction changes people's politics. When people are young and they read it, it formulates their politics. Is that is Or, or are people seeking out work that confirms what they believe? You know, they, they want stories that tell them what they like. Yeah, I mean, I know only of one study and I and embarrassingly I can't remember the authors of the study right now um, because there's not a ton of that um, I guess audience response research might be one way to say it um, but that was really about like a kind of social psych um, approach to science fiction that was like we'll give people we'll measure some values people have we'll give them the stuff to read and then we'll like measure their values they have again at the end of it and see what is shifted that's not a, a research model that happens very often. There's not a lot of, it's a fairly interdisciplinary field, but I can think of few people that are doing like, like social psych like that in speculative fiction, but there's certainly, there's tons and tons of anecdotal evidence. So depending on people's feelings about uh, anecdotal evidence as evidence, but certainly there's all kinds of testimonials about um, developing an interest in science through reading science fiction and want to be wanting to become a scientist through reading science fiction. Uh, and the, there's people that are doing research around 
how to integrate science fiction into STEM educations and how, particularly because science fiction tends to be more diverse than practicing science, how to get like underrepresented minorities and women excited and able to imagine themselves as having a place in science and thus to further diversify science. I do know like lots of initiatives around that. Um, and I would say like, yeah, I'm sure people do seek out the things that they're, they're already sort of interested in these worldviews, but I think people seek out, like say people are interested in cyberpunk because they think, uh, these kind of like hacking adventures are exciting and they might read a bunch of stuff that is like, you know, one kind of, uh, philosophical point of view on that but if they're just seeking out more cyberpunk um you might end up encountering something like steve barnes um and then realizing like oh there's a different way so they're not going to be like oh i must find some like afrofuturism and think about like racial equality but if they just read all the cyberpunk they can find and then they find people that are writing cyberpunk from cuba or cyberpunk from an african-american point of view that there's a possibility that your minds can be changed that way and then there's also the mainstream text like to bring us back to star wars and things like that like they're um you know the mcu even if you like don't like comic books it's pretty hard to exist and have never heard of the mcu and in some way encountered something about it right mm. yeah yeah i mean i like the the black panther film some of the characters in that are, you know, really aspirational from, from a science and engineering point of view, aren't they? Yeah. And I mean, I think that film is just brilliant in so many ways um, because even the antagonist, there's this like contextualized explanation of like how it is that sort of Western colonial exploitation produced this sort of disaffection there's a bit at the end about like, it's great that Wakanda exists, but we also like, what's our responsibility to people of African descent that are living in this, um, you know, uh, uh, sy systemic racial discrimination world. Like there's, there's all kinds of great things. Plus the same like MCU great adventure story that lots of people want to go see in that. Right. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. If you were to go to the cinema tonight and um, you could see something from any of these main, you know, threads, whether it's Lord of the Rings or um, <laughs> MCU, because the cinemas have been closed for a while, right? Well, if you could pick one film, actually, let's do that question. If you, <laughs> it's your first time back to a cinema, I don't know if you've been yet, but if it's your first time back to a cinema, you can go and watch a film of your choice from any point. Which one are you going to do? Uh, that's such a hard question. Uh, and... I maybe feel a little guilty admitting this. I have been back to the cinema. Have you? No, that's Because I got vaccinated and uh, and the cinema is partially reopened. So I had to wear my mask and I had to be sat with like six feet around me if no one else was sat. But it was pretty awesome because there was like me and four people in the cinema. <laughs> so, what did like, you see? Uh, well, there was no science fiction things to see. So I saw um, Guy Ritchie's new film, Wrath of Man. That's maybe embarrassing for me to say on <laughs> <laughs> and to save my my street cred a little bit, I also saw a really really good Mexican film called New Order, which oh. is precisely about these questions of like economic inequality and corruption and things like that. So, cool. okay. but if I could see like any science fiction film from any time, I mean, this is like asking me what my favorite science fiction film is, which is almost impossible to answer. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, 
maybe something like Videodrome. Like that would be pretty cool to see that on the big screen again after a long absence from the big screen. And, and there'd be a little, you know, nice note of like irony in there because it's about videotapes. And every time I teach that film, I have to like be explaining to my students what's going on with the VCRs and stuff like that. <laughs> That's fun. Yeah. I, you know, I, I, so there's the Eden project in, in the UK, which is a, a wonderful kind of horticultural place with domes full filled with plants from all over the place. And they screened silent running in there. It was really, I, I didn't get to it, but um, that's, I want them to redo that so I can. Yeah, no, that's that perfect, actually. And I mean, Silent Running, that's a great film that um, really needs to be watched again because it's like more poignant now than it maybe was when it was made, actually. So mm, yeah, um, no, people no, might get not. a little frustrated by how slow moving the robots are, but it's a great yeah. film. It is um, a great film. And uh, Claire Denis' High Life. I don't know if you had a chance to see that. I've not seen that yet, no. Yeah, I would highly, highly recommend that. And it is about similar issues, but it came out in 2017, 2018, something like that. So it's not Star Wars. <laughs> so if you're if what you're expecting is space adventure, you will not really get space adventure. Yeah. No, no. You know, back at the start of this podcast, you, you you talked about the Empire and you talked about space opera, but maybe you weren't meaning Star Wars. What were you meaning at that point? Well, I mean, Star Wars is certainly one example, but there's um, and um, probably more people discover science fiction these days through film and television than through print. But I mean, from the 1920s, there's been a space opera tradition like Skylarks of Space and things like that. And then there's the great British boom text. So um, I just read recently, actually, um, uh, Ian MacDonald's uh, Luna books, which are essentially sort of space opera about how neoliberalism and financialization <laughs> are coming to destroy us all. So I thought they were pretty brilliant, actually, with having like great space opera adventure. But actually what they're about is like the financialized economy, which is not an easy thing to explain or to turn into an action story. But I feel yeah, he did it quite yeah. brilliantly. No, absolutely. So. Now, I'm sort of getting the, the feeling now that um, this conversation could go on forever. And what I'd like to do is to kind of break it now and do it again at some other point in the future, and maybe you'll come back and talk to us again. Would that be good? I'd be delighted to come back. I, I'm always happy to geek out at any excellent, opportunity. Excellent. I've got a feeling maybe we should do silent running for the podcast, and you should come and join us to talk about it. That would be quite fun. <gasps> that would be brilliant. Yeah, yeah that would be a okay. lot of fun to rewatch. Silent yeah, running let's do now. that. And the kids should know about it. So. <laughs> Yeah, no, absolutely. So let's do that. If people want to uh, read your books, which they should, can you tell us about your book? Sure. Um, so I have one that's coming out in um, the fall. It's unclear exactly when it's coming out because publishers too have been affected by the pandemic. But sometime this fall, which is called Biopolitical Futures in 21st Century Speculative Fiction. And that's all about biotechnology and the commodification of life and uh things like uh, organ donation or artificial organs and transplants and life extension and all that fun kind of stuff. Um, okay. And then I just published an uh, MIT press has an essential knowledge series. And uh, they asked me to write the, the essential knowledge of science fiction. So I thought that was pretty cool that MIT thought science fiction was a thing people needed essential knowledge about. So that, <laughs> so cool. that was, that was pretty cool. Um, 
So that recently came out. And I also just edited a book called After the Human, uh, which is less about the world once we all die um, and more about um, rethinking what it means to be human in a variety of like critical um, disciplinary frameworks in which people are asking questions about things that we sort of touched on in this conversation a little bit, like the Anthropocene and notions of like humans cause these problems, but then we break it down to like which humans, which styles or modes of being human could we imagine different and better ways of being human, stuff like that. Um, and then I have, I mean, I have older books too. I could keep, keep talking, but probably people don't need to know everything I've ever published. So <laughs> No, no. I well, let, let's talk about them next time. <laughs> that'll be fine. I have one more question, which is: I'm also a lecturer in science communication, and I started a couple of years ago, but I just started getting my own students, and um, so I'm encouraging them to do research into science fiction. Right. So oh. we just had one, my first one, who's done a research into what's called is it called the avatar blues where people watch avatar and then feel a disconnection from nature because they're so yeah blown away by that so he's done some exactly some of what you said doesn't happen very often getting people to watch something talking to them beforehand talking to them afterwards i've got some other people next year doing it my question is how many students and for how many years do i have to do it before i can apply to come and work in your university doing it with you <laughs> Well, sadly, the question is really about the neoliberal university and whether we get a line, as we call getting the, the authorization to, to do a job. But if you keep getting students to do that kind of social psych research, you're pioneering a, an underrepresented part of the field. So that's the kind of rationale I can write in my letter asking the dean for the money. So. Okay, let's do it. Amazing. <laughs> <laughs> I see, you don't know how many jobs I've asked for when I've been making this podcast. I, you know, most of the time I'm asking for jobs at NASA. I can't have one of those because I'm not, <laughs> I'm not an American citizen. But if I come and work at the university for long enough, I could presumably get citizenship and then go to NASA. Let's do that. That's fine. All right. Yeah. No, you, it takes seven years, but you, you know, you could work with us for seven years. Yeah. And, then go to, and JPL is like right around the corner here. So, Absolutely. you know, you maybe don't have to go as far as NASA because JPL, SpaceX, all those people, you know, it's the private space race this time around. Isn't it? Isn't it for us? <laughs> I know. Like, you know, if only the cyberpunk writers knew how right they were about the future is about battling corporations controlling our lives. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. It's a funny thing, isn't it? I kind of find it I find it like obviously it's quite a distasteful thing, but these white rich billionaires seeing, you know, who's got the biggest rocket and can get to space first. <laughs> but back in the day it was, you know, two countries waggling their rockets around wasn't it and you know it was it was russia and america going you know who's the who's who's got the biggest rocket and can get to the moon first and there's a there's a lot of stuff that came off that which i love dearly the core of it is quite unpleasant nationalism and then you know now there's some great stuff that comes out of this space exploration it's you know as a nerd i love it but at the, at the core of it is some really deeply unpleasant capitalism yeah i know and and even things like the original space race um meant there were more like opportunities for women or girls to get educated in science because um this was like suddenly a national priority so there's always 
I mean, this is why you need the the fiction about these things, I think, because there's always like the good and bad tangled up together in complex motivations and all these things. But if you, uh, I don't know if you've had a chance to see it in the UK or not, but um, Ron Moore's latest program for all mankind, which I love, I think is quite brilliant, um, returns to that original space race but because it imagines like some some different people in the room, as they say, so like some women get a seat at the table, um, some different kind of conversations can unfold. And we'll see where it goes, because obviously there's still like the Cold War and the Cold War is now lasting into the mm. 90s. So we'll see how that uh, turns out. But I do think one of the things I really, really enjoy about that that program is that while it's revisiting um, this sort of alternative history and and hitting some points that are consistent with how the real history unfolded it also does sort of think through like well if you also had women in decision making roles maybe some of the conversations and decisions would have gone different and now there's like um more characters of color who are also being empowered more than historically was true of nasa and they could do some just phenomenally interesting things mm. with that but We'll have to see how how far they push that. Yeah. Okay, I've got I've got one more question now, which is the man in the high castle. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Who is he? I know. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, where's the castle? Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that that's that's a fascinating thing, isn't it? Yeah, I just um, I have a book which hopefully is going to be coming out in um, 2022. Uh, we're just doing some final revisions after um, external review, but which I co-wrote with my colleague Jonathan Alexander which is um, uh, called Programming the Future, Science Fiction Television and the Ends of Democracy. And uh, Man in the High Castle is a big case study for us in that book. And especially the final season and the kind of rethinking around um, the African-American resistance so that they're not like restoring America, but they're like remaking what it is um, we think of America as being. And I think that whole series is quite brilliant. And particularly like even in early seasons when they're doing, um, I forget what holiday they're officially celebrating, but it's clearly like the 4th of July, but it's like the Nazi 4th of July. And it's, it's not as different as you might think it should be. And that's where you start to be like, huh, and, and opening up some questions. So I also think they did a really good job with that show, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Fascinating stuff. Well, that's that's another episode we need to do, right? But that's next yeah. year. Well, you and your co-author get you on and we'll talk about that. That'll be that would be great. Yes, we can. Yeah. I mean, there's so much I could go on and on. I know you're trying to wrap up, but now you touched on television, one of my deep loves. So now I'm like, and you should watch this. And you should watch <laughs> yeah, yeah, go, go, go for it. <laughs> give us give us one and then we'll call it a day <laughs> uh oh the expanse i guess would be the one yeah. i'd have to go for yeah yeah, yeah um brilliant. but i also i make a plea for counterpart i think is really interesting um beforeners i actually think is really really intriguing um so there's there's a lot there's a lot Indeed there is. And thank you so much to Professor Cheryl Vint for talking to me for this episode of The Cosmic Shed. As you heard, Cheryl will return for an episode or two in the future. And we'll be back very soon when we'll be talking to Rosie Miles about her adventures with the wild creatures of Africa. And thank you very much for listening. The Cosmic Shed. Science fact. Science fiction. And everything in between. This podcast is brought to you by The Stimulus Network.